You're listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight I would ask that you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Job. And we're looking together at chapter 38. We're actually going to be considering in the message the two chapters, 38 and 39, and I commend you, or commend them to you, but for the sake of time, this evening we're just going to be reading verses 1 through 18. But all, both chapters are phenomenal. So Job 38, verses 1 through 18, page 443 of the Pew Bible. Hear the word of God. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? When the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut in the sea with doors when it burst out from the womb? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, Thus far shall you come and no farther, and here shall your proud waves be stayed. Have you commanded the morning since your days began and caused the dawn to know its place, that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it? It is changed like clay under the seal, and its features stand out like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld, and their uplifted arm is broken. Have you entered into the springs of the sea, or walked in the recesses of the deep? Have the gates of death been revealed to you? Or have you seen the gates of deep darkness? Have you comprehended the expanse of the earth? Declare if you know all this. Five men, including Job, have expressed their opinions on this amazing situation. God described Job as blameless, upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. And he was richly blessed. One might expect him, or to have expected him, to be so blessed throughout his life. But the devil challenged God, arguing that Job was an insincere believer. Satan claimed that Job was in it only for the benefits. Strip him of all all that he has and he'll crack. And the devil's shallow view betrays his own sinful blindness and perversion. He accused Job of a mercenary spirit because that's what he is. Satan is the embodiment of sin, if we can call him that. He is the center of arrogance and self-worship. It's all about him. So to glorify his name and to shame the adversary, God permitted Satan to assault his servant. The truth of the matter is this, that Job was being honored 
by God. You might say a strange way to honor his servant. But the Lord trusted Job to remain faithful in his belief despite his tragedies. And that's why he assigned to Job the duty and the privilege of suffering. Isn't this Paul's perspective in Philippians 1? He said this, and I quote, It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer for his sake. It's a gift. Because you see, only precious metals are worth putting into the fire. The chaff is consumed. Job had said, or he will say, he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come out as gold. So the devil all but destroyed Job, took away all of his wealth, killed all of his children, turned his wife against him, and then stripped him of his health. His three friends accused him of unconfessed sin and blatant impenitence. They spoke eloquently of God's greatness and his power and his majesty, but they said little to nothing of his mercy and compassion and grace. We learned in chapter 28 that true wisdom is the fear of God and avoidance of evil. And then Elihu comes along and rebukes Job for justifying himself instead of glorifying the name of God. And in his rambling speech of six chapters, or five, he extolled the divine greatness and pointed to wisdom. And throughout the ordeal, Job maintained his integrity while he groped for answers. He cursed the day of his birth. He expressed a wish to be dead. He wondered out loud about the extent and the severity of his afflictions. And Job wept and he raged and he lamented and he slipped very close to despair. But he did have hope. If not for this life, then for the life to come. Remember, though God slay me, yet I'll hope in him. He knows that his Redeemer lives. He knows that his Redeemer will stand upon the earth. And he even expressed a fervent hope in the future resurrection of the dead because he said, after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. So he could rejoice in the midst of his suffering and the expectation of the beatific vision, seeing God. And that's all he had. That's all he could hold on to and everything else had been stripped away. And I believe one of the great lessons of this book is the proof of the invincibility of God's grace. It is sufficient. The devil is a liar. And he was shamed by God's preservation of Job. Just as God humbled the gods of Egypt, so he shamed the prince of darkness. And with Satan disgraced and the speeches concluded, God reveals himself to Job. And for the first time, Job's wish is granted. God speaks to him from heaven. The Bible says, when the, then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. And it's a vivid reminder that we should be careful what we wish for. The one speaking is the eternal word, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. He is Yahweh, the faithful, covenant-keeping God who is speaking to Job, and it was by him that the world was made, and it was by him that all things came into existence. At Sinai, he spoke amid lightning and thunder, and here he speaks out of the whirlwind. 
Nahum tells us that his way is in the whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. Such is the great majesty of God that storms serve his purpose. And it's not uncommon for them to serve as the context for what we call theophany, when God appears. Stormy wind, you'll remember, preceded Ezekiel's vision on the bank of the Chebar Canal. He saw God. When Elijah was hiding because of Jezebel's threat, Scripture says this, The Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. And of course, when God descended upon Mount Sinai, it was frightening. So terrifying was the scene at Sinai that it says Moses trembled. So out of the whirlwind, Yahweh speaks to Job, and I can only think that he was trembling. Throughout his ordeal, Job's worst fear had been that God had abandoned him. In the midst of his pain, he prayed, but the heavens seemed like brass. And he said, oh, that I knew where I might find him, that I might come even to his seat. And more than once, Job longed to hear something from the Almighty. And now God grants his wish, and it's something Job will never forget. Over the course of two chapters, chapters 38 and 39, the Lord declares his sovereignty. And what is striking and significant, I think, is what God does not say in his speech. He doesn't answer Job's questions. He doesn't give a reason for his silence. There's nothing about the devil's challenge. There's no mention of Job's suffering. God points to his creation and declares his unsurpassed greatness. And of course, he's not obliged to answer questions or to give reasons. He's the Lord, after all. He is the everlasting God, the absolute sovereign. And he says to you and I through Paul, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? What wicked pride is that which demands an account from the Almighty? Some of Job's questions were sensible. I agree with that. So what? God's not obliged to answer Job. Even more so because Job was not only a man, but he was a sinner. As a devoted worshiper, he was upright, but nevertheless, he was a sinner. And he too will stand at the bar of heaven, and he too will answer for his guilt. Thankfully, it's covered by the blood of Jesus. He has no ground on which to stand before the judge apart from Christ. Instead of questioning God, he should have bowed before the throne and given thanks for the mercy he had received. Spurgeon says this, the petty sovereign of an insignificant tribe in North America every morning stalks out of his hovel, bids the sun good morrow, and points out to him with his finger the course that he's to take for the day. Is this arrogance more contemptible than ours when we would dictate to God the course of his providence and summon him to our bar for his dealing with us? How ridiculous does man appear when he attempts to argue with his God? You see, it's for the sovereign to question and arraign the creature whom he created. 
God addresses Job and he interrogates him with respect to his speeches. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is the finite, sinful creature who questions me for what I have done? To darken counsel with human ignorance is an affront to the deity. He who is infinitely wise and knows all things cannot possibly err in what he does. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, says Paul. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. God's ways are not our ways. We know that. His thoughts are infinitely above our thoughts. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? We are in no position to dispute with his decrees or his purposes or his methods or his timing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever, says Paul. It's for us as creatures to exercise humble faith and sincere obedience. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So God does not give answers, but in this passage, he calls Job to account. Dress for action, he says, like a man. And I'll question you and you make it known to me. And he begins this lengthy monologue highlighting the wonders of his world. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Like a master tutor questioning his student, God broadens Job's mind. When the Lord established the earth, all the sons of God shouted for joy. Walk through the creation. Go ahead. Behold the beauty and the order and the wonder of it all. Because God made the seas. He established their boundaries. He keeps them in place. He knows their depths. He's acquainted with the gates of death. He knows the way to light, the place of darkness, the storehouses of the snow. And he's in charge of the storm and the thunderbolt and the frost and the polar ice caps. He formed the stars. He keeps them in line. He displays his glory in the heavens. And he oversees the lion of the forest and the raven in the sky. And he continues the same theme in chapter 39 as he continues the walk through creation. Just look at the diversity and the complexity and the beauty and the wonder of the animal kingdom. Mountain goats and donkeys and wild oxen and ostriches and horses and the hawk. What incredible creatures that God has made. A great and majestic creator. The Lord of heaven and earth. And yet mankind still has barely scratched the surface in explaining these things. If we can't explain familiar things like that, how do we explain the ways of God? The great creator is infinitely above us, so greatly beyond us. He formed the light, he created the seas, he causes the snow, the rain, and the dew. Seasons, clouds, lightning, thunder. He talks about all of these things, animals, birds, fish, and fire. And he opens up this perspective on creation, and Job is humbled. Who was he to question the Lord? Because we're told by the psalmist his greatness is unsearchable. 
So I think one of the lessons that we learn from these two chapters, amazing chapters, is that we shouldn't forget our place in the presence of him who rules the universe. God did not address any of the intellectual problems raised by Job. He simply highlighted his creative power and overwhelmed Job with his majesty. He transcends all thought. He exceeds description. Did you ever notice that? We know what he's not. How do you describe him? He surpasses our imagination. No meditation is more humbling and more spiritually invigorating than this. The contemplation of God ennobles the soul and expands the mind. And we'll spend eternity searching out his greatness. It will be an endless pursuit, a joyful Glorious, fresh, endless pursuit. And God gave Job a taste of this lofty endeavor in what he said here. And it's a bit reminiscent, I think, of what he did in response to the request of Moses. Remember what he said? Lord, please show me your glory. And so God puts him in a cleft of the rock, and as he passes by, he lets Moses see just his back. And here... The Lord parades his greatness before Job, and it is absolutely overwhelming. He controls the processes of nature. He governs the vicissitudes of providence. And who are we to question him, to complain, to murmur? Much of his government and management is shrouded in mystery. Why do good people suffer? Why do wicked people flourish? Why is evil allowed to thrive? I want to know that. Why do decent people perish in unbelief? And why do wretched people end up trusting in Jesus? Why must godly servants of the church, so useful in the kingdom, die an untimely death? These are problems that we face in this life to which we may never get answers. Because God does not explain himself, nor does he have to. Because he's sovereign. He's sovereign. We use that word all the time. I don't know if we understand or appreciate its extent. We looked at this verse this morning, Deuteronomy 29, and I think it applies tonight. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. Brethren, that's our privilege, to know and to believe and to do the revealed word of God. Solomon concludes his extensive exploration by saying, Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. In other words, God may not explain to us his providence, but he has revealed to us his will. All else pales in comparison with knowing and obeying the true and living God. In his presence, the one who lives forever and ever, Job began to sense his unworthiness. He would soon confess his ignorance and repent of his pride and turn from his boldness. And all of this because he got a glimpse of God's infinite and eternal majesty. How often do you and I contemplate the heavens? I mean, really. 
Walking outside on a clear summer night, spring night, contemplate the heavens or consider the stars. When was the last time I looked and took a good look at the world around me? The creatures, your hand. They still can't manufacture a hand that looks like this. Let's be thankful for the infinite wisdom of God who is the master of the storm, secondly. He is the Lord of lightning and thunder, wind and rain, snow, tornadoes and ice, and that is as true in the spiritual realm as it is in the natural sphere. He is in control of the trials and the tribulations and the disappointments of your life and mine. And as a loving father, he disciplines his children so he does this in love. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, because he loves you. Don't look down as if affliction springs out of the dust, but look up to God. Like the blessings of our lives, the trials are part of his providence, and he has a purpose for all of it. Pray for the grace to resist despising the tribulations that he sends. That's not easy. With reverent humility, let's submit to what his fatherly wisdom brings. And note this as well, that after long periods of calm and sunshine, a storm is often needed to clear the air. The stagnant waters need agitation. The dry ground needs moisture. The trees need to be pruned by violent winds, and the earth needs to be replenished. And the application of it is obvious. Believers benefit from the trials of life. It's painful, but beneficial. This is counterintuitive among those who have no faith in Christ. But if we consider Jesus himself, we discover how beneficial they are. He is the most righteous man who ever lived. And he suffered more than anybody else in mankind. And his suffering and his death procured the greatest good the world has ever seen. So let's recognize and appreciate the benefit of difficult trials. From a biblical perspective, they prune and they strengthen and they make us fruitful. And in the face of approaching storms, we can trust the God who rules over them. Finally, earlier, Job expressed his faith in the coming Redeemer who would stand upon the earth. He trusted in the promised Messiah and was looking ahead to the resurrection. And such evangelical hope as that had been cultivated over years of spiritual discipline. He was devoted to truth, faithful in worship, committed to loving others. It wasn't flashy. There were few mountain peaks. There were few valleys. It was steady progress. Day after day, week after week, worship and devotion was the rhythm of his life. And thus, from his heart, in his daily activity, he was able to fear the Lord and shun evil. And that's true wisdom. That's wisdom. It's not the ability to explain the movements of providence. That's not wisdom. It is the obedience of faith in a personal relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And so should we not strive to build our faith and hope with the same rhythm? Devoted to truth, faithful in worship, committed to loving others. And it begins with the scriptures. We must know the things that God has revealed. Again, dovetails with this morning. The things that are revealed belong to us. With the word, God's spirit grants new life. And with the word, God's spirit sanctifies the soul. And insofar as you and I know and believe and embrace this book, our faith and our hope will grow. That's how the spirit cultivates a steady, warm, well-nourished soul. He presents gospel truth to the mind. It filters down into the heart and it's embraced by a lively faith. And as we said, to do us any good, that knowledge of Christ must reach the heart because the devil is as orthodox as they come and he hates Christ. Our goal is a heart that loves Jesus in truth and that truth comes from the scriptures through the mind into the heart. So study God's word. Hear it with readiness, meditate upon it affectionately, and by God's power, our minds will be enlightened and our wills will be renewed and our desires will be sanctified because in proportion to the knowledge of Christ and our trust in him will be our peace. That's what Isaiah says. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. The more knowledge, the firmer our trust and the more inward peace. The less knowledge, the weaker our trust and the less will be our peace. I'm not a Pharisee, but let's face it, the word gives us the knowledge of Christ. This is one reason why a good, sound, biblical theology is important. You cannot love and trust and follow someone you don't know. Do you know Christ? Do you know who he is? Do you know what he's done? Do you know how he plans to save you? When he says, seek first the kingdom of God, I believe that involves primarily striving to know Jesus Christ. May all of us benefit from that endeavor. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we're amazed at your speech to Job, your majesty and your greatness, which are unsearchable. We pray that with Job, you'll expand our minds and our perspectives, enlarge our hearts, so that we get more of a glimpse of your greatness and help us to be humble and to walk humbly with our God. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.